Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 5.36 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 5th of October, 2021, and this is episode 488 of Bitcoin. And let's just, let's get right into this, all right? And this may be a shorter show. I don't know yet. Fiat money is Babel. Bitcoin is clarity. Yosef Titek has this one out of Bitcoin magazine. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Genesis 11, 7. The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Friedrich August von Hayek. A price system is an information exchange network. It works best when built on top of a globally shared neutral monetary medium. The more complex society becomes, the more pressing the need for a neutral monetary standard that doesn't introduce noise into economic signals. One of the most profound insights in economics is Hayek's take on the nature of prices. In a short and readable article called The Use of Knowledge in Society, Hayek explains why there wouldn't be any exchange nor any complex society without the existence of prices. Prices are data reflecting the economic reality. A modern economy generates billions of pieces of possibly irrelevant information about people's preferences, investors' risks, appetite, resource scarcity, manufacturing circumstances of particular goods, and so on and so forth. We need to continually share this information to be able to coordinate our efforts. As the great economist Leonard Reed pointed out, no single mind knows how to produce even a simple thing such as a pencil. Economic reality undergoes constant change. Similarly, the price system is in continuous flux, which makes it hard to paint an accurate picture of what's really going on here. When prices emerge in an unobstructed manner, they reflect reality and we can cooperate well. When prices are prevented from emerging or adjusting freely and thus no longer reflect reality, our ability to cooperate is hindered. As Hayek says, prices communicate the knowledge of a particular circumstance of time and place. The dominant use of knowledge in society isn't via books, TVs, or classrooms. It's the price system that is mankind's main knowledge exchange network, and it's amazingly efficient. A brief example, Turkey grows around 80% of the world's hazelnuts. Now imagine something happens in Turkey, civil war, a hazelnut blight, meteor strike. How does the rest of the world find out that something happened and that walnuts or peanuts should now be used whenever possible? Not from your TV. The skyrocketing price of hazelnuts breaks the story first. The price communicates only the most relevant information. The hazelnuts have become relatively scarce. It doesn't matter where in the world hazelnuts are produced or what happened there. What matters is that the nuts are now pricier and people need to economize. Quote, in abbreviated form, by a kind of symbol, only the most essential information is passed on and passed on only to those concerned. End quote. Hayek. A price system is a minimum viable medium of knowledge transfer. It allows us to cooperate globally, even if we don't share the same language, culture, or worldview, because these factors do not matter for economic cooperation. Prices are objective guides in our joint struggle to survive and prosper. There are billions of possible pieces of information that could be relevant to any production process, consumer decision, or investment opportunity. Without prices to communicate the knowledge of local circumstances, we would be groping in the dark, and that is precisely what societies without a price system ended up doing. From the Inca Empire to the Soviet Union, societies without a working price mechanism turned into slave states, which saw little to no progress. 
We have already established that for prices to convey economic signals properly, they need to represent the underlying economic reality, but prices are often actively prevented from doing so. There are three factors that affect how well prices do their job, how prices emerge, how they propagate, and the quality of the price-carrying medium, or the money. <clears throat> how prices emerge. Prices need to arise out of the concept of private property. For example, privately owned money and capital, land and buildings, machinery and technology, etc. With property in private hands, the incentives are in place to utilize it efficiently. Rewards for good decisions as well as punishments for bad ones accrue to those who are most receptive of them. On the other hand, protecting property owners from bearing the brunt of bad decisions, as in the case with bailouts and subsidies, is a sure way to cripple the price system, as prices then no longer carry the risk component. For a popular illustration of such moral hazard, see the movie The Big Short. How prices propagate. Even if prices emerge undisturbed for the foundation of private property, price regulation can kill that signal before it is propagated. In the course of the 20th century, one of the most popular forms of price regulation was rent control. The results of rent control is best illustrated with the popular quip from Swedish economist Asar Lindbeck, who compared its effect to city bombing. This is because price regulation such as rent control leads to a degradation of capital. With prices kept below their true market value, it's no longer worth it for the owners to repair and improve the property. Many people are surprised when confronted with the view that interest rate manipulation by central banks is a form of price control, but the fact is that an interbank interest rate, which the central bank usually targets, is a type of price, and central banks do everything they can to control this price down to the basis point 0.01%. Neutrality of a monetary medium. Prices do not exist on their own. They need to be expressed in terms of a monetary medium. The nature of the monetary unit plays a critical role in how well the price system can do its thing. Let's say a kilogram of hazelnuts used to cost 10 bucks, but then it went up to 11. Now, if these prices emerged in a market economy <clears throat> without any government intrusion, the growth in price can reflect two things the supply of hazelnuts decreased or the demand for hazelnuts increased. Either way, market participants don't particularly care for the details as long as they register the signal of increased hazelnut scarcity. But when the money itself isn't a neutral measure, there is a third potential cause for the growth in price, an increase in money supply and a resulting dilution of the purchasing power, also known as inflation. The problem then is that the economic reality didn't change, so prices shouldn't propagate any change in the signal. But with inflation, the price mechanism is distorted with noise, and market participants adjust their behavior as if the signal was real. Money with an elastic supply is like a tape measure from rubber. It doesn't measure anything properly because intrinsically it is subject to dynamic changes internally. The monetary medium has to be neutral for prices to work correctly on top of it, but today's fiat is anything but neutral. Its supply is centrally managed by a state agency, the central bank, to meet an arbitrarily defined goal like an inflation rate on a narrow selection of consumer goods and services. The money supply of even the most stable fiat currencies today increased by 5-20% to on a year-over-year -year basis, causing mayhem in the price system when, wherever this newly issued money hits the economy. We have a term for some of its consequences, the Cantillon effect. But even recognizing this barbarous effect barely scratches the surface of what's wrong with today's activist monetary policy. Fiat monetary policy essentially introduces a random number generator into the price system. It affects literally everything in society. The nature of our jobs, our propensity for consumption over building up savings, even our culture. The non-neutrality of the monetary medium is much more serious than the restriction of private property or a price regulation because it's global. We currently have about 180 national currencies and all of them are subject to activist, centrally managed monetary policies. It's no exaggeration to say that all the fiat currencies are on a hyperinflationary path <clears throat> where the timescale over which it happens is the only difference. The global nature of the fiat standard is perhaps 
The major reason why the problem of money neutrality isn't widely recognized and addressed today, least of all by the economics profession. The case is simply that everybody's doing it. <clears throat> it's hard to fathom a monetary policy that isn't controlled by the state when such a form of money has been unheard of for more than 50 years now. When money is defined as the thing that the state decrees, of course, only fiat is then recognized as money. Through this point of view, all the problems of current monetary systems can allegedly be solved by introducing more and more experimental policies like quantitative easing, repo facilities, negative interest rates, CBDCs, and so on. The price system is a result of human action, but not of human design. Attempts to design and manage this system fail whether they take the form of restricting private property, controlling prices directly, or manipulating the foundation of the monetary medium. It's admittedly naive to believe that a significant share of mankind will grasp the importance of the price system and defend it against intervention. Much more realistic is the prospect that people following nothing else but their own private motives <clears throat> will opt out of the fiat system and choose Bitcoin, as it affirms its value as a reliable store of value over the years. Bitcoin will begin to repair the price system as it progresses in adoption from a store of value into a medium of exchange, and this may take a while as people will always have the incentive to spend fiat rather than Bitcoin as long as they earn their wage in fiat. But it will happen nevertheless, with pockets of fiat collapse around the world being followed by bottom-up Bitcoinizations culminating in global hyper-Bitcoinization. Bitcoin as the neutral monetary medium will allow the price system to work undisturbed and develop into mankind's superconductive information highway. Thank you, Yosef Titek from Bitcoin Magazine again. Now, uh, what I kind of wish he had done was gone into the Genesis quote at the very top of the article. I'll read it again for you. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Genesis 11, 7. All right, if you don't know what that's referring to, it's referring to the Tower of Babel. There was, you know, some early, very early, you know, sects of people got together and decided that they were going to build this tower to heaven. And, and honestly, what pissed God off about it, I don't think was necessarily the building of the structure as the reasoning to build the structure was to become gods themselves. Yeah, that's not a good idea, yo. Uh, God has a tendency to get real smitey when it comes to that kind of bullshit. So, but instead of destroying the, you know, wreaking ha physical havoc, he just basically caused everybody to start talking a different language. I've wondered about this morality play, if, if you will, <clears throat> for quite a while now and had thought very seriously about writing an article about it and I may, and I may still, because nobody's really touching on it. But was it the language of the people that was confused, or was it the language of their information, i.e., the money, their markets? If God were to confuse all of that, it would have had the exact same effect. The effect was is that all these people just kind of broke apart and went off on their in their separate ways with under you know the understanding of each other's particular language. So those that could understand each other were, they just kind of grouped together and they left and so on and so forth. But, you know, generally speaking, writing, the ability for the humans to write as we write today started basically with writing contracts, writing down in cuneiform on these uh, clay tablets, who owed who what or who possessed what or, you know, whatever. And so it's very clear that money is language. It's one of the oldest languages that there is, in fact. So, you know, keep it in mind that it may not have been God confusing structural language, the words that we speak, as much as the markets that we have to deal with, because honestly, it would have had the exact same effect. If you can't understand why I want, you know, a pound of hazelnuts for X amount of whatever money I'm using, if you don't get that and you don't sell it to me, I'm going to go off on my own and I'm going to find somebody who will sell me hazelnuts for however much money that I want, right? Or, or something that's close to it. But if I want to, you know, like a pound of hazelnuts for a buck and you refuse to do anything for under 50 bucks, we can't understand each other. 
I don't understand why you're charging so much for hazelnuts and you don't understand why the hell I'm such a cheapskate. This causes problems. So yeah, keep that shit in mind. Uh, Blockstream in the news, bro. Uh, <clears throat> and in a lot of ways, uh, or I, I think a lot of people will look at Blockstream right now and go, this is bad news. I don't necessarily think that this is bad news. I actually honestly think this is kind of bullish. Uh, the Liquid net Network is facing delay in processing as transactions begin to stack up. This is out of Coindesk, written by Sebastian Sinclair. Liquid, a sidechain-based settlement network operated by Bitcoin infrastructure firm Blockstream, is currently facing issues processing transactions. The network's mempool is beginning to fill as each transaction awaits processing. The last transaction occurred over four hours ago, according to Liquid's webpage. Liquid said it was aware of an issue on its network that related to block signing related to recent functionary upgrades, according to a tweet late Monday. Block signing is a type of digital signature used to verify the authenticity of transactions on a given blockchain. While not nearly as popular as other non-Bitcoin platforms, 3,291 liquid Bitcoin are currently in circulation, which sees roughly 500 transactions processed on the network each day, according to Liquid's webpage. LBTC is an asset that claims to be verifiably backed one-to-one -one with Bitcoin held by the Liquid Federation on the Bitcoin main chain. The Liquid Network <clears throat> first launched in 2018 after three years in the making and, at the time, touted the potential to carry large volumes of transactions at a higher speed for several of Bitcoin's largest companies. So for a long, okay, so here's what's going on. <clears throat> Liquid is a side, Liquid Network is a side chain of Bitcoin. This, as was said in the article, but it's been relatively kind of unused, but not anymore. See, <laughs> and this is why I don't think that this is bad news. I actually think that this is bullish. We're starting to see more and more like functional Bitcoin sidechain uh, technologies take off. We're watching, as you know, I report on the Lightning Network all the time as a layer two. This is kind of like a layer two. It's not exactly the same as as Lightning Network because it it's done to is processing. Its reason for being is different than the liquid net or than the Lightning Network. But still, the liquid network has basically been kind of idle for a while. And like I said, bullish. Not anymore. It's starting to take off as well. Hyper Bitcoinization right around the corner. Continuing on, Bitcoin Magazine's Paul Apoku has this one called Everyone is Early to Bitcoin. I know of people that see the price of Bitcoin and think to themselves, damn, I missed it. I'm late. Because of this, they are drawn to the lower priced coins, the altcoins, that will ultimately have no value in the long run. <clears throat> they think the coins that are trading for less than a dollar are somehow going to become the next Bitcoin. The issue here is that there is no next Bitcoin. Bitcoin was and is a historic accident, kind of like uh, the discovery of fire by our ancestors. For context, let's discuss the early internet. In the early 1990s, only a small number of people had access to things like email and forums. Back then, the internet was an oddity. Not a lot of people had a clue of where it was going. Few could have imagined social networking, social media, the iPhone, online conferencing, and the shift to online businesses, and especially Amazon, which would be founded in 1994 as a bookstore. I think that's where we are with Bitcoin. <clears throat> we are still very, very early, particularly because so many people are not aware of all the developments that are occurring and what's being built on top of Bitcoin as we speak. One project being built on top of Bitcoin is what's called a layer two solution, the Lightning Network, which now boasts over 14,000 nodes and 68,300 payment channels spanning across all six continents, eh, sorry, Antarctica, and then comes layer three solutions, the decentralized apps that are being built on top of the Lightning Network. The goal is to create a new peer-to-peer -peer internet that's not subject to the control and censorship of big tech. In this way, it realizes the original ethos of the internet. Using the infrastructure that's being built by companies such as Impervious, we are seeing the first glimpses of projects that will enable people to make calls to Lightning nodes and monetize any service without a bank account using Lightning. 
We are witnessing the early stages of an evolution. We don't know where it's going yet. Bitcoin's layer one, the settlement layer, has proven to be the best store of value with nation states adopting it as legal tender and abandoning the United States dollar's global hegemony. The Lightning Network has proven itself to be the best medium of exchange. And now we have the emergence of layer three, decentralized apps. The companies of the future will be built here. This makes Bitcoin seem all the more scarce for the functionality that it provides. In terms of adoption, Bitcoin has roughly the same amount of users as the internet did back in 1997. However, Bitcoin is growing at a faster rate. If this continues, we may very well have over 1 billion users within the next four years. The day-to-day -day price movement of a single Bitcoin is merely noise. It doesn't matter what price you buy at. You don't have to take my word for it. There are individuals and group deviations smarter and wealthier than I that see current prices as a blip. Using Plan B's stock-to-flow model, we are steadily on our way to $1 million per coin. Worrying about where we are trading right now is like worrying about Amazon or Apple share price in the late 2000s. We're just getting started. The Lightning Network is still going strong. These are exciting times. I'm privileged to have lived and to have seen the dawn of the modern internet and its evolution to the present day. With Bitcoin, it's not too late. We still have the opportunity to take part in its evolution. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. And this brings, uh, brings to light a, a brief story that I'll tell you about what happened to me yesterday. Uh, minding my own business, uh, you know, <clears throat> doing my, my remote job. I had a guy knock on the door who I was expecting, and he was from a uh, heating and air company that had installed the uh, new heater and new air conditioning system in my house last summer. Yeah, because mine crapped out on me. And guess what? <clears throat> it was using the refrigerant that nobody can get. Nobody can get it. It's like 55 bucks a pound if you can get it, but it's really hard to get a hold of because basically it's kind of illegal. So... The king valve on my old air conditioner was, uh, had basically rot rotted off and started leaking when, well, there was just nothing to do. So yeah, $7,000 later. Yeah, I know. It's, oh God. Uh. <clears throat> I had a new air conditioner and a new heating system. <clears throat> so the guy comes out from the company that installed it to do an annual checkup, which I thought was pretty cool because I didn't pay for it. They just do that as, as a courtesy and make sure that everything is clean and, and all that spiffy and stuff. So I'm sitting here chatting with this gentleman who is an air, con he's, he's the guy that comes out to fix your air conditioner when it breaks. He's like the guy that in July is your favorite guy to see because he's going to make you not suffer. And we're just sitting there chit-chatting and I cannot remember under what context it came up because I certainly wasn't talking about it. But he brings up Bitcoin. I live in a town that is very small, very rural, very agriculturally based. Not exactly the place and you know the the place that you'd expect the the AC guy to bring up Bitcoin all by his lonesome. I don't have any Bitcoin paraphernalia that is readily you know viewable in the public parts of of my house because that's an OPSEC nightmare. I'm not going to put, you know, the Bitcoin B on a, like painting above my freaking mantle, right? But nevertheless, this guy brought it up all by himself. I gave no indication that I was into Bitcoin. I have never met the gentleman before. And even down here, guys, <clears throat> even in the panhandle of Texas, in a small podunk town, I got a guy fixing air conditioners talking about Bitcoin. Just bringing it up in common conversation like he wasn't even, didn't even skip a beat. You know, and if, you, if you're new to this show and haven't heard any of the last shows, um, when we first moved here about three, it was like, yeah, it was a, three years ago, two years ago, I can't remember, somewhere around there. Whenever we first moved to this town, I was in standing and I was going to, I uh, was walking, actually, I was walking into the supermarket and there was a group of what I can only assume were high school kids, about five or six of them, and they were talking about Bitcoin, but yeah, they were also talking about a whole bunch of shit coins too, but just having a, a, a little powwow right in front of United Supermarkets about cryptocurrencies in a little podunk town in the Texas panhandle, 
I mean, dude, <clears throat> it's I don't know. I don't know when this is when this is all going to break loose, but with price action today, I don't know. Maybe we'll see that million dollar a coin before we all die. <laughs> Bitcoin Exchange CoinFloor migrates customer base to Coin Corner. Check it out, dude. Thomas M's got it for BTC Times. A new acquisition has two of the oldest Bitcoin exchanges serving the British market come together. UK-focused exchange Coin Corner has acquired the customer base and domains of CoinFloor, the UK's longest-running Bitcoin exchange. <clears throat> All of CoinFloor's customers will now be transferred to Coin Corner, the exchanges told the BTC Times. CoinFloor and Coin Corner have been serving the UK market for years, with both exchanges being among the oldest in the region. The migration will provide CoinFloor's users a list of new features supported by Coin Corner, including, including Bitcoin cashback, a Bitcoin payment solution, and Lightning integration. The developments come as Coin Corner announced last week it has gone carbon neutral, adding to a range of developments involving sustainable solutions for Bitcoin businesses. The acquisition was based on aligned goals among the two exchanges. CoinFloor CEO Obi Nwosu said, quote, Coin Corner and CoinFloor have always stood for the same principles, the growth and support of the Bitcoin technology philosophy and community, focus on helping customers as our highest priority, and providing safe and simple ways to buy Bitcoin. During the transitory period, Nwosu will take on an advisory role at Coin Corner, CoinFloor customers can choose to migrate their accounts to CoinCorner or alternatively close their CoinFloor account and withdraw funds. While CoinCorner is acquiring CoinFloor's domains and user base, CoinFloor's companies and assets will not be acquired. <clears throat> the UK has seen steady growth within its local Bitcoin space. June numbers released by the Financial Conduct Authority, the UK's financial watchdog, estimated the number of UK citizens who hold cryptocurrencies to be around 2.3 million a rise of 400,000 since the previous year. To add to the developments, PayPal rolled out Bitcoin purchases for its British customers earlier this month. Meanwhile, the UK central bank has shown itself less Bitcoin friendly. In May, Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey reiterated his previous comments that Bitcoin has no intrinsic value and that holders should be prepared to, quote, lose all their money. Like the central banks in various other countries, however, the Bank of England has expressed an interest in central bank digital currencies. In April this year, the central bank appointed a task force to research the risks and opportunities associated with a central bank digital currency. Now, you'd think we'd be done with the FCA news, but we're, we're not. This one's actually really hilarious. The FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority that we were just talking about, yeah, the FCA Influencer Program and Bitcoin. Mm, this is Bitcoin Magazine, and it's Shinobi again writing. Here come the influencers. The Financial Conduct Authority in the UK has announced an 11 million British pound campaign enlisting celebrities and influencers to warn the general public of the dangers of high-risk investments. I know, man. It's so cringe. I can't believe Shinobi was able to actually write an article about it. I, I, I'm amazed. The FCA is a financial regulatory authority in the UK that was established in 2013. It operates independently of the UK government. This is an interesting dynamic to consider given the context of public messaging relating to COVID-19 information. There are many examples of programs paying influencers on social media to propagate specific messaging related to COVID, such as complying with mask mandates, getting vaccinated, etc., etc. Now the point here isn't which side of any of these individuals is factually correct or effective. It's just about the messaging mechanisms, incentives, and trust people place in others. Say what you want about the societal health of influencer culture. The fact remains that it exists and large amounts of people actually place some degree of trust in influencers that they follow on social media. This is why government programs of this sort relating to COVID have been so effective. The FCA is now tapping this playbook to begin a campaign messaging against high-risk investments to the wider public. During the COVID lockdowns in 2020, there was a massive uptick in retail investors trading on platforms like Robinhood, especially among millennials. The huge unemployment spike in combination with unemployment benefits, stimulus payments, and rent moratoriums, moratoriums left many people with excess cash and way too much time on their hands. 
many invested in cryptocurrencies and so-called meme stocks, it's probably fair to assume that a lot of these individuals lacked fundamental market understanding or were just chasing short-term gains. The argument can, can be made that this was highly reckless behavior and that many of these new investors will, in, <clears throat> will wind up financially hurting themselves. That is exactly what the FCA is claiming. In their announcement, the high-risk investments they are going to spread cautionary messaging about specifically includes mentions of cryptocurrencies and how many of these new retail investors' first investments were cryptocurrencies. For instance, on Robinhood, a massive portion of the money that was invested into cryptocurrencies was flowing into Dogecoin. Now, it's not entirely unreasonable to warn people against taking actions that could be financially harmful to themselves. However, there is more context to this FCA campaign than just that. They specifically mention in the announcement that 8.6 million people hold more than 10,000 great British pounds of investable assets in cash. Why? Because the FCA is trying to directly incentivize one-fifth of those people in the next five years to start investing. So, at the same time, they are going to start paying social media influencers to propagate warnings of high-risk investments in order to ostensibly protect investors. They are actively trying to encourage more and more of the population to start investing their money instead of holding it in cash. Do you see the conflict of interests and goals here? All investment comes with risk and that will always be the case. This seems much more likely to be an attempt by the FCA to control what people are investing in rather than simply protecting them from dangerous investments themselves. Bitcoin is a huge potential threat to legacy markets. The more people invest in Bitcoin, the more liquidity it takes out of the legacy market. Every dollar I use to invest in Bitcoin is a dollar that doesn't pump up the value of the S&P 500. Every dollar I use to invest in Bitcoin is a dollar that doesn't drive up the price of real estate in some location. All of these markets depend on new, younger money continuing to use them as intergenerational wealth is transferred. In addition to older money selling to facilitate retirement, I have to imagine the proposition of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies soaking up that liquidity instead of the stock market real estate, etc., is a pretty terrifying proposition for legacy, <laughs> legacy institutions. We're in the phase of this is how they fight us, but it's not going to get nasty and obvious right from the start. It's going to take shape of things like this program financially incentivizing influencers who have built up trust in the wider populace to spread the message, quote, Bitcoin is bad, but the stock market is good, end quote. They'll try to pressure and twist people's arms into giving up their hard-earned cash and putting it into markets to, quote, not miss out on gains. I don't think they really care about people like that. They simply see that money as a necessary fuel to keep the Ponzi scheme going. And just like America, when it comes to oil reserves, they will do whatever they can to acquire it. Don't lose sight of that. This is an information war coming, and programs like this are one of the ways they are fought. This is probably one of the, the more important pieces that I've read. You have to be aware that this is occurring, guys. That, by the way, that's the end of the article. But you have to be aware that this shit is occurring. So let's sum it up. The FCA, basically a non-governmental organization who is honestly, come on, they're part of the government. You, they say they're not, but that doesn't mean that that's true. They lie to us all the time. A non-governmental organization is going to pay celebrities and influencers to get you to not buy Bitcoin, but to buy stocks instead. This is a very dangerous game that they are starting to play. And it's even more dangerous for the influencers themselves as they will be put on a cross by the Bitcoin toxicity. And I've just got finished listening to, to like, Peter McCormick and some other people talking, and Udi Wertheimer talking about how Bitcoin toxicity is bad. I disagree. I'm sorry. I, I actually like Udi, but I just completely disagree with this, especially in the face with this kind of shit rolling out. Guys, be prepared to fight. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's probably going to suck, you know, even way more than I can imagine. I don't want to do it. Nobody really wants that fight, but we're going to have to fight it. Well, actually, the people that want the fight are the legacy markets. We, we just want to be left alone. 
That's what we really want. We really just want to be left alone, but they're going to drag us into this fight and they're going to do it by trashing the reputation of thousands of celebrities and thousands of influencers because when these guys start doing this shit, it is going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be a bloodbath. So anyway, hey, let's run the numbers. CNBC.com futures and commodities is not making Peter Schiff a happy camper this morning. Let's start with oil, as we always do. <clears throat> West Texas Intermediate is up three quarters of a point to $78.21. Brent North Sea, or yeah, Brent North Sea crude has just gone north of 80 bucks a barrel. That has not happened in quite a while. $82. That is up almost a full point. Natural gas up almost three full points to $5.93 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline has jumped by almost a point. It is now sitting at $2.32 per gallon. Here's where Peter Schiff starts to cry. All, all the shiny metal rocks are down. Gold is down 0.68 of a percent to $1,755. Silver is down a half a point, $22.51. Platinum is down almost a full point. Copper is down almost two full points. And palladium <clears throat> is up 1.12%. Uh, agricultural futures seem to be mostly down. Wheat is getting kind of pummeled along with coffee. Uh, wheat is down point, not point, 1.42%. Coffee is down one55 Cotton, however, getting a boost, 1.61% to the upside. And the markets, indices, Dow futures up a third of a point. S&P futures up a third of a point. NASDAQ futures up a third of a point. Do you see a pattern? S&P mini is up a little bit over half a point, so breaking out of the pattern. But honestly, these things are like marching in lockstep at this point. Dow isn't any better than S&P and NASDAQ isn't any better than Dow. And you, yeah, my God, let's talk about real money. 50, or oh, so just switched over back down below 50,000, $49,961. Although I do have three prices, Bitfinex, Simex, and Coinsbit are all showing Bitcoin slightly above $50,000. <clears> 295,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours is 12,300 transactions per hour on average, with a mere 803,000 BTC being sent in the last 24 hours. That's only 33,500 BTC sent on average per hour, with 2.71 BTC being the average transaction value and the median transaction value 0.016 BTC, right around 780 bucks. Block times are low again. Eight minutes and 11 seconds, people. That's pretty damn low. 0.07 BTC taken in fees on a per block basis. 14 BTC taken overall in fees in the last 24 hours. And with a 7.44% rise in hash rate, we are now at 151.21 exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is Dogecoin at $0.23. Yes. 23.7 United States pennies will buy you a single coin of Doge. And when I bought Doge, it was well below a penny. And I sold it to some chick that wanted to get me kicked off of Twitter. I hope she has fun staying poor. Clark Moody Bitcoin is showing 3,190 transactions waiting on two blocks to clear with a $943 billion market capitalization. Bitcoin is taking 8.19% of gold's market cap. And with your one Bitcoin, you can purchase 28.4 ounces of shiny metal rocks if you would like. There are, in fact, 18 million. 835,335.25 BTC in circulation at this time. And we are now looking right at over 3,000 BTC tied up in Lightning Network. Ladies and gentlemen, we, we've broken the $3,000 barrier or 3,000 Bitcoin barrier, sorry. 3,001.6 Bitcoin are in the Lightning Network being run over 15,725 nodes with 73,000 868 channels. My God, this thing is marching on. 
Uh, Clark Moody showing a price of Bitcoin at $50,080. Oh, sorry, I did that in the wrong order. Uh, there are <laughs> 74.2% of the Lightning Network is being run over Tor, and that's 10,330 Tor nodes that are handling 2,226.87 BTC. And again, the price of Bitcoin for Clark Moody is $50,100 now. That's gonna do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the news you can use. Hash rate and difficulty rebound shows that miners have recovered from the China exodus. Martin Young has it for Cointelegraph. Bitcoin mining operations are on the path to full recovery following the most dramatic short-term disruption in network history earlier this year, and miners are reaping the rewards and revenue. In its October 4th week on-chain report, on-chain analytics provider Glassnode reports that Bitcoin hash rate has largely recovered despite 50% of the network's hashing power going offline in May following China's crackdown on the sector. Hash rate measures the total computational resources of a proof-of-work network. Glassnode asserts that both hash rate and mining difficulty, which measures <clears throat> competition among miners seeking to solve the network's next block, are both on a consistent path to recovery. Cointelegraph reported that difficulty slumped by 28% in early July. Having increased 39% since late July, mining difficulty has nearly returned to its pre-China exodus levels, with an additional upward adjustment expected to take place this week. Glassnode has also reported that the difficulty ribbon has posted its strongest reversal since December of 2018. As observed by Chinese media outlet Wu Blockchain, Bitcoin's difficulty increased by 4.71% at block height 703,584 on October the 5th. It is the sixth consecutive increase since July 31st. Despite block wards having been slashed by 50% from 12.5 BTC to 6.25 BTC in May 2020 having event, mining profitability has increased significantly since. Glassnode noted that the current mining profitability of $40 million daily is up 257%, no, sorry, 275% since before May's 2020 halving and has increased by roughly 630% compared to June's 2020's low of roughly between $6 million and $8 million. Quote, despite dramatic shifts in the mining market, multiple deep price corrections, and the halving event in May 2020, the Bitcoin block reward of value continues to rise, creating incentives for the market to adapt, innovate, and recover the report added. So there you go. We're done. We're done. <laughs> we don't have to worry about China. We stop worrying about China. The next time, uh, the next time that China says they're banning Bitcoin, I hope the price doesn't do anything but go up. I mean, also, like, honestly, we should just spot buy 35 bucks of Bitcoin every time China opens their big fat mouth about banning Bitcoin or something that they're going to do to Bitcoin or something that they're going to not allow Bitcoin owners to do. Fuck it. Spot buy 35 bucks every single time they do it from now on. Screw these guys. I'm taking my football and I'm going home. SEC subpoenas USDC stablecoin backer circle. Couldn't happen to a better company. I don't like circle. Uh, we won't get into why, but they were on the wrong. We'll just say that they were on the wrong side of the block size debate. Coindesk's Danny Nelson will tell us more. Circle Financial is under investigation by the SEC, the payments company disclosed on Monday. A key supporter of the USDC stablecoin, Circle said in regulatory filings that it received an investigative subpoena from the SEC's Enforcement Division in July 2021. That subpoena requests documents and information regarding certain of our holdings, customers program, customer programs, and operations. We are cooperating fully with the investigation, Circle said in the filing issued as part of, uh, part of a plan to go public. In the documents, it did not elaborate on what the SEC's investigation was focused on. Circle did not return a request for comment. 
The subpoena arrived one month after Circle began onboarding corporate USDC holders onto its first high-interest yield product, Circle Yield. It pitched U.S. corporations on a well-regulated crypto yield product in a subsequent announcement that boasted of Bermudan licenses. I guess you're going to go to Bermuda. That was more than Coinbase, the other member of the USDC issuing center consortium. Sorry about that clicking. My cat, who was apparently in my uh, study with me, decided that it was time to start sharpening claws. Let me do that sentence again. That was more than Coinbase. The other member of the USDC issuing center consortium could tout when the SEC effectively iced the exchange's planned lending program last month. Gary Gensler's SEC has come out swinging at crypto all this year, repeatedly arguing for more enforcement authority. Circle first disclosed the investigation's existence in an August filing that went largely unnoticed at the time. It's not the firm's first disclosed run-in with the SEC as it prepares to go public in a SPAC deal, valuing the company at $4.5 billion. Circle said in August it agreed to pay the SEC over $10 million to settle charges that its one-time subsidiary, Poloniex, was operating as an unregistered digital asset exchange. So that's all that's going to happen, people. Nobody at Circle is going to go to jail, and they're, they're certainly not going to eviscerate their operating revenue by taking all their money. So they're going to be allowed to do all this shit just however it is that they want to do this shit. They're just going to pay a fine that is a fraction of what they're worth. I honestly don't give a shit anymore. I don't use Circle. There's nothing that I will ever use Circle for. It's up to the toxic Bitcoiners to build companies that don't get into this bullshit, right? Please do so. <laughs> I'd like to see your companies. Bitcoin beats stocks commodities to become the best performing asset of 2021. Uh, again, <laughs> William Suberg has it for Cointelegraph. As October delivers 15% gains in five days, BTC firmly outperforms macro assets worldwide to seal year-to-date returns of just under 50%. Despite Bitcoin's wild ride throughout the year, downside has failed to grip the market with a 60% retracement from highs in May, now all but canceled out. The largest cryptocurrency is thus at least 13% ahead of commodities for the year, figure show last week, and 17% ahead of United States micro-cap companies. Compared to how some other investments perform, the picture is even rosier for BTC holders. European stocks, for example, are just up 10.3% year-to-date this week. Quote, after the strong Q3 performance, Bitcoin is now up 49.1% year-to-date. The at Bitcoin Twitter account commented on the data set from investment firm NYDIG. And here it is, it basically shows a list and I'll, I'll read them from top to bottom. Um, Bitcoin is at the very top with 49.1% year-to-date returns, then commodities, then micro-craps, uh, micro US micro-caps, REITs, US small-cap value, mid-cap value, large-cap, large-cap value, mid-cap, US stock market, US cap growth, small-cap, mid-cap growth, international ex-US uh, small-cap, European stocks, international ex-value, international developed ex-US, global ex-US stock market, inflation, <laughs> we beat inflation, good, US small-cap growth, Pacific stocks, high-yield corporate bonds, tips, long-term tax-exempt, emerging markets, Intermediate tax or intermediate term tax exempt, short term investment grade, and short term tax exempt, and then cash, which is sitting at 0.0%, which isn't exactly true, but it makes sense given, given this. So cash hasn't returned any gains. Honestly, kind of cash kind of shouldn't, but whatever. And guess what's down at the very, very, very bottom? Long term corporate bonds, long term treasury gold at a minus 7.9% and all the precious metals in a bag at minus 18.2%. No wonder Peter Schiff is salty. I would be too. Anyway, as Cointelegraph reported, September has historically been a conversely unimpressive month for Bitcoin, while October sees the opposite effect. With stocks themselves forecast to enjoy above average returns this month, 
Hopes are high for a strong finish in the fourth quarter after September's performance. Beyond macro, however, there remains individual success stories that beat Bitcoin. And we don't give a shit because they only beat Bitcoin in the short term. There's been a lot of altcoins and ICOs and all manner of piles of shit that have at one point or another outperformed Bitcoin if, if you were basically in it for the short term. Nothing is going to beat Bitcoin in the long term. I don't even worry about it. And that's why this particular article is over. The FTX exchange to flex political muscle in DC with crypto PAC, say sources. FTX denies it though. John, or rather Jeff John Roberts has it for decrypt. <clears throat> Cryptocurrency giant FTX is planning to advocate for crypto interest in Washington, DC, with the launch of a political action committee or PAC, according to two sources familiar with the matter. One of the people familiar with the project who was not authorized to discuss it publicly said FTX is in the process of hiring a director for the PAC. While there are a handful of other crypto PACs in Washington, uh, including HODL PAC, the person said FTX's initiative would dwarf them in scope. After the story was published, a spokesperson for the company denied the report, saying, quote, FTX has no plans to establish a PAC or a super PAC, nor are we looking to hire any director for one, end quote. Neither FTX nor its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, had initially replied, replied to a request for comment. A PAC is a corporate vehicle that can donate up to 5000 to any political candidate and, in the case of so-called super PACs, can spend unlimited money advocating on issues like taxes, the environment, or crypto policy. Bankman-Fried is reported to be worth at least $10 billion, so the influence of any pack he launches would likely be significant. A senior employee at another large cryptocurrency company said he had not heard of the FTX plans, but added that he would not be surprised by such an initiative, saying FTX has been aggressively trying to poach other crypto firms, lawyers, and lobbyists in Washington. If FTX does launch a PAC, it would not be Bankman-Fried's first foray into politics. The 28-year-old was one of the President Biden's biggest donors and in a March interview with Vox described how his worldview is shaped by data and math, including using money for optimal political outcomes. He is not your friend, guys. After maintaining a low profile during FTX's rise, Bankman-Fried has recently put himself and his company in the media spotlight. This includes a series of sponsorship deals that have put FTX logos on the Miami Heat basketball arena and every umpire in Major League Baseball. If Bankman-Fried puts FTX's considerable resources behind a pack, it could increase the political leverage of the crypto industry, which is still regarded with mistrust by many politicians and policymakers. An FTX PAC would be able to spend unlimited money highlighting the positions of various elected officials and could spend heavily on donations and on TV commercials and other media. Okay, this is just as bad as the Financial Conduct Authority hiring celebrities and influencers to tell you to not buy Bitcoin, but to buy stocks instead. It will not surprise me in the least. We were kind of we were kind of all raw raw around the Bitcoin 2021 conference, weren't we? With Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX and the Miami Heat Arena and all the other bullshit that they were pulling off. Where the rubber meets the road is: Will he advocate for Bitcoin, or will he advocate for shit coins? I suspect he's going to advocate for all of them, and the fact that all of them includes the shit coins makes Sam Bankman-Fried not, not really my friend right now. I, I, really, I really don't like him. And last up, DeFi hack. Yep, another day, another DeFi hack. Stake Stake lost nearly $200,000 in an exploit. The DeFi protocol on the Phantom Network, Stake Stake, suffered an exploit today of 80,000 FTM alongside 81,000 USDC amounting to $196,000 worth. According to a postmortem released by the protocol, the hack was caused by a private key that was scraped from one of its repositories on GitHub that had been there for over five months. In a press release, the protocol claimed ownership for the exploit and admitted that this was a fatal slip. Quote, leaving the deployer's private key in the config file is a rookie mistake, and while I was a rookie when I first started Stake, we still had five months to identify the error and take the necessary steps to secure our contracts. 
This we failed to do, and as a result, has cost users thousands of dollars. End quote. Following the exploit, the protocol announced that it plans the issuance of an exclusive token that will be airdropped to stakeholders and LPs before the exploit. However, the protocol noted that the issuance does not come because of the exploit. Rather, the platform has been considering rebranding to further facilitate practical services instead of the ancient staking stake. Whatever. I don't know. It's, I think this is actually, I think CoinGape uh, is, authors are, are translated to English. According to the protocol, the rebranding will also include naming the platform either Stake Stable Swap or Singularity Swap with the token name Singularity. The DeFi protocol has requested the community's approval before moving ahead with a brand change. The protocol further clarified its compensation plan post the exploit. They restated that a snapshot will be taken before the exploit that will account for all stake token hodlers, including X-Stake, Stake FTM, LPs, Stake FUSD, Stake IFSD, oh, sorry, IFUSD, and Stake FTM. The addresses included in the snapshot will further be converted to the new token proportional to the balance of stake tokens. However, LPs will be compensated at a better rate because of the impermanent loss suffered from the exploit bullshit. They're just printing money. They got hacked. They fucked up. They got hacked. They lost their people's money. And what are they going to do? They're going to airdrop them a coin they just mint out of, well, fresh air. This is just printing money. I have reiterated this a lot on this show. Stay as far away from DeFi as you possibly can until DeFi is actually, you know, has a use case other than circular yield generation, which means that nothing is actually ever created. There's no capital that's really deployed to cause real revenue in the world, in the real world to come to you, like financing a business, you know, building a, a, a new manufacturing hut for your already, you know, cash flowing business. That's what finance is for. DeFi has none of those properties, but the property that it does share are exploits and people losing all their money. Stop doing this shit. One of these days, there will be actual DeFi on, on real Bitcoin that is capital that you can use to deploy in the real world to build businesses and do things. The way DeFi is right now on Ethereum is a circle jerk and everybody's getting fucked. That's gonna do it for the morning roundup. All right, joke time. However, this is not coming from Dad Says Jokes. What do you call it when Batman skips church? Christian Bale. I have no idea who sent me this. You know how I got it? Twitter tips. That's right. If you want to help support the show, there's a couple of different ways you can do it. There's actually four real ways that you can do it. I have a Patreon page, Bitcoin and podcast. If you want to support me there with, with Fiat, I have, uh, my podcast is registered as a podcast 2.0 compliant RSS feed, which means any podcasting 2.0 app that you can put some Satoshis into like the breeze wallet, uh, is, is a pod uh, amazingly enough. Yes. It's a, it's a lightning wallet that has the ability to play podcast and you can stream me, uh, Satoshis over the lightning network in real time while you listen to the show. So you can do it with podcasting 2.0. Third is that uh, Twitter enabled my tipping on Twitter. And yes, I turned it on. I don't care. Well, okay, I, I, I actually do care. It's just that I, I'm, I'm not going to continuously allow myself to be hampered by, you know, I mean, I'm already KYC'd through, through Twitter anyway. They knew who the hell I am. I, it's like, it's not, it's not going to change anything. So I said, screw it. I turned on uh, my Twitter tip. So if you want to throw me a joke to be read on the air, then use the Twitter tip because you can apparently write a message in, in, in into a, a Twitter tip and I get the message. And in this case, somebody paid me 69 US pennies to read this 
joke, which is actually a pretty good joke. Anyway, the fourth and final way that is a non-monetary method to support this show, if you want, is to retweet my show tweets, tell people about the podcast, five-star reviews on Apple iTunes. All of that actually helps because it gets into the, al- it, 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 what it does is it leverages, the, you know, well, in this case, it leverages the Twitter algorithm. But in the case of the five-star review on Apple iTunes, that thing kind of triggers its own algorithm on that pl- platform all by itself. And it's super freaking powerful, by the way. So if you want to support me without any monetary help, it's, it's still just as important. It's just as important to get the word out in the, the ways that I just told you um, as, as any kind of monetary support. So feel free that if you just don't want to, you know, if you don't want to support the show monetarily, you can press some buttons for me. And I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.